0: Section number twenty, the vice consul, a city built on a rock, a libation to the gods, of on a Chinese screen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. On a Chinese screen by W. Somerset Maugham, chapters fifty-six to fifty-eight the vice-consul his bearers set down his chair in the yamen and unfastened the apron which protected him from the pouring rain he put out his head like a bird looking out of its nest and then his long thin body and finally his thin long legs he stood for a moment as if he did not quite know what to do with himself he was a very young man and his long limbs with their ungainliness somehow added to the callowness of his air. His round face—his head looked too small for the length of his body—with its fresh complexion was quite boyish, and his pleasant brown eyes were ingenuous and candid. The sense of importance which his official position gave him—it was not long since he had been no more than a student interpreter—struggled with his native shyness. He gave his card to the judge's secretary and was led by him into an inner court and asked to sit down. It was cold and draughty, and the vice-consul was glad of his heavy waterproof. A ragged attendant brought tea and cigarettes. The secretary, an emaciated youth in a very shabby black gown, had been a student at Harvard and was glad to show off his fluent English. Then the judge came in and the vice-consul stood up. The judge was a portly gentleman, in heavily wadded clothes, with a large smiling face and gold-rimmed spectacles. They sat down and sipped their tea and smoked American cigarettes, they chatted affably. The judge spoke no English, but the vice-consul's Chinese was fresh in his mind, and he could not help thinking that he acquitted himself creditably. Presently an attendant appeared and said a few words to the judge, and the judge very courteously asked the vice-consul if he was ready for the business which had brought him. The door into the outer court was thrown open, and the judge, walking through, took his place on a large seat at a table that stood at the top of the steps. He did not smile now. He had assumed instinctively the gravity proper to his office and in his walk, notwithstanding his obesity, there was an impressive dignity. The vice-consul, obeying a polite gesture, took his seat by his side. The secretary stood at the end of the table. Then the outer gateway was flung wide. It seemed to the vice-consul that there was nothing so dramatic as the opening of a door, and quickly, with an odd sort of flurry, the criminal walked in. He walked to the centre of the courtyard and stood still, facing his judge. On each side of him walked a soldier in khaki. He was a young man, and the vice-consul thought he could be no older than himself. He wore only a pair of cotton trousers and a cotton singlet. They were faded, but clean. He was bare-headed and barefoot. He looked no different from any of the thousands of coolies in their monotonous blue that you passed every day in the crowded streets of the city. The judge and the criminal faced one another in silence. The vice-consul looked at the criminal's face, but then he looked down quickly. He did not want to see what was there to be seen so plainly. He felt suddenly embarrassed. And looking down, he noticed how small the man's feet were, shapely and slender, His hands were tied behind his back. He was slightly built of the middle height, a lissom creature that suggested the wild animal, and standing on those beautiful feet of his there was in his carriage a peculiar grace. But the vice-consul's eyes were drawn back unwillingly to the oval, smooth, and unlined face. It was livid. The vice-consul had often read of faces that were green with terror, and he thought it but a fanciful expression and here he saw it it startled him it made him feel ashamed and in the eyes too eyes that did not slant as the chinese eye is wrongly supposed always to do but were straight in the eyes that seemed unnaturally large and bright fixed on those of the judge was the terror that it was horrible to see but when the judge put him a question trial and sentence were over AND HE HAD BEEN BROUGHT THERE THAT MORNING ONLY FOR PURPOSES OF IDENTIFICATION. HE ANSWERED IN A LOUD, PLAIN VOICE, BOLDLY. HOWEVER HIS BODY MIGHT BETRAY HIM, HE WAS STILL MASTER OF HIS WILL. THE JUDGE GAVE A BRIEF ORDER, AND FLANKED BY TWO SOLDIERS, THE MAN WAS MARCHED OUT. THE JUDGE AND THE VICE-CONSUL ROSE AND WALKED TO THE GATEWAY, WHERE THEIR CHAIRS awaited THEM. HERE STOOD THE CRIMINAL WITH HIS GUARD. Notwithstanding his tied hands, he smoked a cigarette. A squad of little soldiers had been sheltering themselves under the overhanging roof, and on the appearance of the judge the officer in charge made them form up. The judge and the vice-consul settled themselves in their chairs. The officer gave an order, and the squad stepped out. A couple of yards behind them walked the criminal. Then came the judge in his chair, and finally the vice-consul. They went quickly through the busy streets, and the shopkeepers gave the procession, an incurious stare. The wind was cold, and the rain fell steadily. The criminal in his cotton singlet must have been wet through. He walked with a firm step, his head held high, jauntily almost. It was some distance from the judge's yamen to the city wall, and to cover it took them nearly half an hour. Then they came to the city gate and went through it. Four men in ragged blue—they looked like peasants—were standing against the wall by the side of a poor coffin, rough-hewn and unpainted. The criminal gave it a glance as he passed by. The judge and the vice-consul dismounted from their chairs, and the officer halted his soldiers. The rice fields began at the city wall. The criminal was led to a pathway between two patches and told to kneel down. But the officer did not think the spot suitable. He told the man to rise. He walked a yard or two and knelt down again. A soldier was detached from the squad and took up his position behind the prisoner, three feet from him perhaps. He raised his gun. The officer gave a word of command. He fired. The criminal fell forward and he moved a little, convulsively. The officer went up to him, and seeing that he was not quite dead, emptied two barrels of his revolver into the body. Then he formed up his soldiers once more. The judge gave the vice-consul a smile, but it was a grimace rather than a smile. It distorted painfully that fat, good-humoured face. They stepped into their chairs, but at the city gate their ways parted. The judge bowed the vice-consul a courteous farewell. The vice-consul was carried back toward the consulate, through the streets, crowded and tortuous, where life was going on just as usual, and as he went along quickly, for the consular bearers were fine fellows, his mind distracted a little by their constant shouts to make way. He thought how terrible it was to make an end of life deliberately. It seemed an immense responsibility to destroy what was the result of innumerable generations. The human race has existed so long, and each one of us is here as the result of an infinite series of miraculous events. But at the same time, puzzling him, he had a sense of the triviality of life. One more or less mannered so little. But just as he reached the consulate, he looked at his watch. He had no idea it was so late, and he told the bearers to take him to the club. It was time for a cocktail, and by heaven he could do with one. A dozen men were standing at the bar when he went in. They knew what errand he had been on that morning. "'Well,' they said, "'did you see the blighter shot?' "'You bet I did,' he said in a loud and casual voice. "'Everything go off all right?' He wriggled a bit. He turned to the bartender. "'Same as usual, John.' A CITY BUILT ON A ROCK. They say of it that the dogs bark when peradventure the sun shines there. It is a grey and gloomy city, shrouded in mist, for it stands upon its rock where two great rivers meet, so that it is washed on all sides but one by turbid rushing waters. The rock is like the prow of an ancient galley, and seems as though possessed of a strange unnatural life, all tremulous with effort. It is as if it were ever on the point of forging into the tumultuous stream. Rugged mountains hem the city round about. Outside the walls, bedraggled houses are built on piles, and here, when the river is low, a hazardous population lives on the needs of the watermen. For at the foot of the rock, a thousand junks are moored, wedged in with one another tightly, and men's lives there have all the turbulence of the river. A steep and tortuous stairway leads to the great gate guarded by a temple, and up and down this all day long go the water-coolies with their dripping buckets, and from their splashing the stair and the street that leads from the gate are wet as though after heavy rain. It is difficult to walk on the level for more than a few minutes, and there are as many steps as in the hill-towns of the Italian Riviera. Because there is so little space, the streets are pressed together, narrow and dark, and they wind continuously, so that to find your way is like finding it in a labyrinth. The throng is as thick as the throng on a pavement in London, when a theatre is emptying itself of its audience. You have to push your way through it, stepping aside every moment as chairs come by, and coolies bearing their everlasting loads itinerant sellers, selling almost anything that anyone can want to buy, jostle you as you pause. The shops are wide open to the street, without windows or doors, and they are crowded too. They are like an exhibition of arts and crafts, and you may see what a street looked like in medieval England when each town made all that was necessary to its needs. The various industries are huddled together so that you will pass through a street of butchers, where carcasses and entrails hang bloody on each side of you with flies buzzing about them and mangy dogs prowling hungrily below you will pass through a street where in each house there is a hand-loom and they are busily weaving cloth or silk there are innumerable eating-houses from which come heavy odours and here at all hours people are eating then generally at a corner you will see tea-houses and here all day long again the tables are packed with men of all sorts drinking tea and smoking the barbers ply their trade in the public view and you will see men leaning patiently on their crossed arms while their heads are being shaved others are having their ears cleaned and some a revolting spectacle the inside of their eyelids scraped it is a city of a thousand noises there are the peddlers who announce their presence by a wooden gong, the clappers of the blind musician or of the masseurs, the shrill falsetto of a man singing in a tavern, the loud beating of a gong from a house where a wedding or a funeral is being celebrated. There are the raucous shouts of the coolies and the chair-bearers, the menacing whines of the beggars, caricatures of humanity, their emaciated limbs barely covered by filthy tatters and revolting with disease the cracked melancholy of the bugler who incessantly practises a call he can never get and then like a bass to which all these are a barbaric melody the insistent sound of conversation of people laughing quarrelling joking shouting arguing gossiping it is a ceaseless din it is extraordinary at first then confusing, exasperating, and at last maddening. You long for a moment's utter silence. It seems to you that it would be a voluptuous delight. And then, combining with the irksome throng and the din that exhausts your ears, is a stench which time and experience enable you to distinguish into a thousand separate stenches. Your nostrils grow cunning. Foul odours beat upon your harassed nerves like the sound of uncouth instruments playing a horrible symphony. You cannot tell what are the lives of these thousands who surge about you. Upon your own people sympathy and knowledge give you a hold. You can enter into their lives, at least imaginatively, and in a way really possess them. By the effort of your fancy you can make them after a fashion part of yourself. But these are as strange to you as you are strange to them. You have no clue to their mystery, for their likeness to yourself in so much does not help you. It serves rather to emphasize their difference. Someone attracts your attention, a pale youth with great horn spectacles and a book under his arm, whose studious look is pleasant, or an old man wearing a hood with a sparse grey beard and tired eyes. He looks like one of those sages that the Chinese artists painted into a rocky landscape or under Kangxi, modelled in porcelain, but you might as well look at a brick wall. You have nothing to go upon. You do not know the first thing about them, and your imagination is baffled. But when, reaching the top of the hill, you come once more to the crenellated walls that surround the city and go out through the frowning gate, you come to the graves. They stretch over the country, one mile, two miles, three, four, five interminable green mounds, up and down the hills, with grey stones to which the people once a year come to offer libation, and to tell the dead how fair the living whom they left behind. And they are as thickly crowded, the dead, as are the living in the city and they seemed to press upon the living as though they would force them into the turbid, swirling river. There is something menacing about those serried ranks. It is as though they were laying siege to the city with a sullen ruthlessness, biding their time, and as though in the end, encroaching irresistibly as fate, they would drive those seething throngs before them till the houses and the streets were covered by them, and the green mounds came down to the water gate. Then, at last, silence would dwell there undisturbed. They are uncanny, those green graves. They are terrifying. They seem to wait. A Libation to the Gods. She was an old woman, and her face was wizened and deeply lined. In her grey hair three long silver knives formed a fantastic headgear. Her dress of faded blue consisted of a long jacket, worn and patched, and a pair of trousers that reached a little below her calves. Her feet were bare, but on one ankle she wore a silver bangle. It was plain that she was very poor. She was not stout, but squarely built and in her prime she must have done without effort the heavy work in which her life had been spent. She walked leisurely, with the sedate tread of an elderly woman, and she carried on her arm a basket. She came down to the harbour. It was crowded with painted junks. Her eyes rested for a moment curiously on a man who stood on a narrow bamboo raft, fishing with cormorants, and then she set about her business. She took three tiny bowls, and filled them with a liquid that she had brought with her in a bottle, and placed them neatly in a row. Then from her basket she took rolls of paper cash and paper shoes, and unravelled them so that they should burn easily. She made a little bonfire, and when it was well alight she took the three bowls, and poured out some of their contents before the smouldering joss-sticks. She bowed herself three times, and muttered certain words. She stirred the burning paper so that the flames burned brightly. Then she emptied the bowls on the stones, and again bowed three times. No one took the smallest notice of her. She took a few more paper cash from her basket, and flung them in the fire. Then without further ado, she took up her basket, and with the same leisurely, rather heavy tread, walked away. The gods were duly propitiated, and like an old peasant woman in France, who has satisfactorily done her day's housekeeping, she went about her business. End of Section 20 End of On a Chinese Screen by W. Somerset Maugham